uh, kind of follow along with us as we go through. But, you know, I, I think one of the biggest shortcomings that modern Christianity has produced is a complacency for the church. Um, it doesn't take much anymore for people to convince themselves not to come to church. There's a variety of reasons that people come up with that. I don't feel 100%, or, you know, I'm too tired. I have a busy day on Monday. The kids have sports games. There's, there's big games on TV. And the, the list of reasons what that people come up with, just excuses is all they are, but the list of reasons could go on and on. But the fact remains that church is not a priority for most people anymore. Where Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night used to be the norm or used to really kind of be the bare minimum, now it's rare to find a church that actually has anything more than just a simple Sunday morning service. And blame that on the leadership that let the emphasis slip away from the church, but the reason why that's happened is because people have stopped going. And unless you think that I'm just trying to boost the attendance here by trying to guilt trip you, let me remind you how important the church is to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his blood, with his life. You're there in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at verse 25. And this is obviously the family dynamic, but what a, what a comparison God makes here in this passage, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 29, for no man yet ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. He loves the church. He gave his life for the church. He nourishes and cherishes the church. That's what Jesus Christ thinks about the church. It was so important to Christ that he gave everything, including his life. How much of a priority should it be that we place on the institution that he loves? We see in other passages that Jesus Christ gave his life for us, his, his, his people. But I see nothing else in the Bible that Jesus Christ gave his life for. Not work, not sports, not any other thing other than the church. And it brings joy to God's heart when you treat the church the way that Christ treated his church. He gave his life for the church. I want you to, you're there in Ephesians chapter, or in Ephesians, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, because I want you to make no mistake this morning, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of this church. At least he ought to be, and if he's not, then we're making a huge mistake somewhere. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Matthew chapter 16 is not, talking, is not establishing Peter as the first pope when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, if he was talking to Peter, he would have said, Upon that rock. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus Christ himself is the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of our church. And if our church is not built on that foundation, then we're building on sand, then it will crumble. Just look around at some of these mega churches. It seems like God must be blessing them or they wouldn't be as large as they are. But you see what happens over and over and over. And almost every week, it seems like one of these mega churches has the, the, the pastor that's, 
that's been in sin for most of the time that he's been there, and now it's coming out, and the church just crumbles underneath all of that because it's built on sand. It's not built on Jesus Christ. It's built on making money. It's built on, it's built on popularity. It's built on the power structure. It's built on anything else but on Jesus Christ, and it will crumble. It's eventually going to come down. But once we have that foundation, we have to build on that foundation. It takes all different types of building materials to make a building, but for that building to stand, there must be pillars. There has to be some parts of that building that don't change. You might change the face. You might change the facade. You might make some cosmetic adjustments, but the pillars will never move. They're always there because they're holding up the building. Let me tell you, yesterday, we lost one of our pillars. Nitin and Neha leaving to go back to India is a loss for our church. It's heaven's eternal gain because of the reason they went back, but this church took a hit. We have other pillars in this church, but let me say we need pillars. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Even in Revelation 3 and verse 12, this is looking forward into the future. But him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. One of these days, God will make us pillars in his temple. Any person in this church today can be a pillar of the church. We need men and ladies who will start and end in this church, who will make up the backbone of this church, that no matter what changes on the face of the church, they're going to be here. When the kids grow up and move away and, and do what God calls them to do and they come back to visit, there you'll still be faithfully serving God. That's what a pillar is. And the church that I grew up at, I was there for 20, 23, 24 years of my life, and I still go back there. And some people who were there since the day that I was born are still there to this day, still standing as pillars in that church. Pillars are an encouragement to the pastor. And when you have someone that you know is going to be there no matter what, when you have, you know, no matter what happens, if the Bible is still being preached and followed to have your back, that's a huge blessing. And I'm not saying that because you should be doing this for me. You should not be a pillar in the church because of me. It very well might be that God calls me somewhere else and there'll be somebody else come in. That doesn't change the pillars of the church. It's an encouragement. It's a blessing to me. I appreciate it. I benefit from it, but you should be doing it for him. It's his church, and you ought to love it the way that he does. And this is not, this is not a continuation of the message that I preached a couple weeks ago as the, uh, on, on the pastor as shepherd, but it kind of runs in that same vein. I want to give you a few characteristics this morning of a pillar of the church. We need pillars. We need pillars. So what can you and should you be doing to be a pillar in the church that Jesus Christ loves? Let's pray, and then we'll look at a couple things here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, I thank you for an opportunity to be here. Thank you that we can open up your word. I pray that you'd help it to be clear to us. I pray that you'd help our hearts to be open for what it is that you have for us this morning. And God, I pray that you'd raise up pillars in this church that will be here until you come back or until you call us home. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over to Mark chapter 12, if you will, because a pillar, a pillar in the church is going to, number one, give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Mark chapter 12 and verse number 41, the Bible says this, and you're familiar with this story. I'm just going to read it to you here. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow. She threw in two mites, which make a farthing. 
And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. You know, the wonderful thing about giving sacrificially is that you don't have to be wealthy to do it. You don't have to be wealthy to be able to give sacrificially. Two men were marooned on an island, and, and one man was pacing back and forth like, he, like this was going to be the last day that he was alive on the earth. And the other guy was just kind of sitting back. There was a tree on this island. He was just kind of sitting back and relaxing. And this, this other guy couldn't understand, how in the world are you so relaxed? And so he turned to this man, and he said, aren't you afraid? We're about to die. The second man said, no, I made a $100,000 commitment to our church building fund. My pastor will find me. It ought not to be that you have to be tracked down and forced to give. Now, I'd never do that anyway, but someone who loves the church will love to give to the one whose church it is. God loveth a cheerful giver, but most people grip their money so tight that God has to pry their hands off of it in order for them to put it in the offering plate every Sunday. There's a lot of verses on tithing in the Bible, which we're not going to explore for the sake of time this morning, but a tithe is 10%, and that's a tithe that belongs to God. What if God took... Everything that you were giving, what if God took what you gave on a Sunday morning typically and multiplied it by 10 and made that your income? How would you get along if that was the income that you had? 10% of everything that we have belongs to God. It's his. He owns it, and he says it makes that very clear. But you understand, tithing isn't the ceiling of giving. It's the floor. That's where we start, and then we give to God on top of that. It's not the finish line of giving. It's a starting block. If what you're giving doesn't change your lifestyle, then I dare say you're not giving enough. I heard of a fellow who told his friend, I can give $1,000 to the building fund and not even feel it. His buddy turned to him and he said, then why don't you give four or $5,000 and feel it? <laughs> Lest you think I'm just telling you that because we need it in this church, I want you to know that I do exactly what I'm telling you to do. And I'm not bragging about the amount of money that I give. You don't know the amount of money that I give, but it changes my lifestyle. There are things that I could do, things that I would like to have that I cannot because of the amount that, that we give. And I'm not saying that in a bragging way. I'm not saying that in a complaining way. God more than compensates. God more than makes up for it. Because your wealth is not, is not valued only in money. It's not valued in what you have in your bank account or your 401ks or all of your other retirement accounts that you have. Boy, I'm telling you what, I have my health and my family's health, and I'm thankful for that. I've got my family together, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm not saying that, that all those things happen just because I give to God. I understand that people who give to God go through difficult times as well. But boy, God blesses you in way more ways than just giving you money back. And if the only reason you're giving to God is for what you can get from him, you're giving with the wrong motives anyway. But boy, you'll never understand the joy of giving and the joy of the blessings that come from giving until you start giving to God and until you start giving sacrificially. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins? I've seen that before, and, and I'm sure you have, but millions of people act like that's true. The more accurate thing is, he who dies with the most toys still dies, and everything stays behind when they leave, right? We don't win, we lose. When we die after devoting our lives to acquiring things, we move to eternity, but our toys move into the junkyard. They rust, they rot, they, they get bickered over by our families. They separate families after we're gone, Right? It's not he who has the most toys wins. He who gives the most and passes the most on to eternity is the one who wins. Because those things are going to last forever. The bumper sticker couldn't be more wrong. But when you pass it on ahead, you're investing in eternity. And that's something that obviously will never fade away. Randy Alcorn, perhaps you recognize his name. He's written a lot of books. But he wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. And in it, he said this. 
My friend Dixie Fraley told me, we're most like God when we're giving. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. And that's what makes up the foundation of the church. I'm not telling you to try to buy God off, but you'll be drawn closer to Christ when your heart is a sacrificial heart. Preacher asked his farmer, if you had 100 cows, would you give 50 of those to the Lord? He said, well, absolutely, I'd give 50 of them to the Lord. He said, well, let me ask you this. If you had... If you had 1,000 chickens, would you give 500 of them to the Lord? He said, of course I'd give 500 of them to the Lord if I had 1,000 chickens. He said, well, if you had two hogs, would you give one of them to the Lord? He said, that's not fair, Pastor. You know I have two hogs. <laughs> and that's the way that most people are when it comes to giving, right? Oh, if I won the lottery and I, I was a billionaire, I'd give $10 million to the church until you win the lottery and get a billion dollars, and then all of a sudden you're, you're gripping it tight. Hey, we can do that with what we have today. We can give sacrificially today. Before I move on to the next point, can I say that giving sacrificially does not only include your money? When we talk about giving so often, hey, a tithe, 10% of everything that we have belongs to God, right? Doesn't God give you, obviously, every financial thing that you have, every physical thing that you have, but God gives you every breath that you take? Shouldn't 10% of our time belong to God too? Sometimes the things we're most stingy with is our time. Church needs to be a priority in your life and in your family's life. And I'm not saying that's the only reason that I grew up to and end up serving God with my life, but church was a priority in our home when I was growing up. And that didn't have anything to do with me. But we had Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I could count on one hand the number of times I missed any of those services growing up. And a lot of services in between. Our life revolved around what was going on at church, not the other way around. Our lives revolved around that, and I know that I was much better off for it. Pillars give sacrificially, but also, number two, pillars will serve unconditionally. We belong to Jesus Christ, and we are to serve him. A, a hog and a hen were sharing the same barnyard, and they heard about a church's program to feed the hungry. And the hog and the hen, they sat down, and they started discussing how they could help, and the hen said, I've got it. I know exactly what we can do. We can provide bacon and eggs for all those people who are hungry. And the hog thought about it for a second. He said, there's just one problem with your bacon and egg solution. For you, it's a contribution, but for me, it's going to require total commitment. And that's the cost of true discipleship. And so few Christians are willing to make that total commitment. So many Christians are fair-weather servants. When it serves them to serve, they'll do it. But when it gets difficult or it begins to require a little bit of sacrifice, then they conveniently find a way to step aside. That's the average Christian today, I'm afraid. Most Christians are not willing to commit. They don't want to join because they may want to do something else. They don't want to get involved in a ministry because something else might come along that's a better opportunity for them, and they don't want to have a commitment weighing them down. They don't want to get involved in a ministry because something else may come along that's a better opportunity. And well, if I want to miss, then I want to be able to miss without having to try to cover that ministry or without people wondering where I'm at or any of those kind of things. It's amazing to me that most Christians are willing to commit to anything but church. But you think about all the commitments that you have in your life and how many things you will move around to make sure that that commitment works. The teacher schedules a, a parent-teacher meeting and, well, we got to move everything around to get to that meeting or the coach schedules a game, and oh, we got to move everything around to make sure we get to that game and that practice and everything else. The pastor and the church are the only ones that get the short end of the stick. Oh, we'd be there, but we have this little thing that came up, and now we can't come to church. Oh, we'd be there at that activity, but now this little thing came up, and we can't be there for that, and well, i got to move the schedule around, and unfortunately, the only thing that got kicked out was church, right? Why is it that God always gets the short end of the stick? 
We'll make commitments to everything else, and we'll move whatever we have to move to make those commitments work until it comes to the things of God. And we would never say it that way, but that's exactly what we do by the way that we live our lives. This is not my church. This is God's church. He made me to be the leader of the church, but we are fellow laborers. Don't think that God requires certain things out of me because I'm the pastor that he doesn't require out of you because you're not the pastor. You know, every once in a while I hear a criticism of, of a pastor, not, not, not here I'm saying, but just, you know, of a pastor by a church member. Well, you know, I don't have any confidence in that pastor. He left that church to go to another church for more money. You shouldn't do that, and we, we would all say amen to that. But any man that would go to another church that would pay him more money, and that's why he's going, is in hireling. Like the Bible says, and in my estimation, he has no business being in the ministry. But you have no business going from one job to another for money either. You have, you have to say, does God want me to go? Not, am I going to get more money because I go over there? You have a place in this church, you're involved, you believe God wants you here, and then the big boss calls and tells you, hey, we got another position open for you, it's going to pay you $15,000 more a year, and you say, well, that settles it, guess we're moving on. No, does God want you to do it? It may be that God does want you to move on, but that's not, the, 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 the question is not, am I going to get more money by doing this, am I going to have a better position by doing this, it's, does God want me to do this? Your life does not revolve around your work. Your life should revolve around your service to God, and that should be unconditional service. If it means that I have to take a pay cut because I want to stay right here where God called me to be, then I have to take the pay cut to stay where God wants me to be. It doesn't settle it. It's the time that you seek the will of God and see what God wants you to do. That's what serving unconditionally is. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. I know you're familiar with this story. This is the story of Saul, who obviously became the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. But if you want to serve God unconditionally and you want to know what he wants you to do, then there must be a willingness. Acts chapter 9 and verse number 4, of course, the light shone from heaven. Verse number 4, we pick up, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee there what thou must do. Do you really want to live in complete surrender to the Lord, or do you not? Because if you are willing to serve unhindered, if you're willing to serve unconditionally, then it does not matter what God calls you to do, you'll do it. It does not matter where God calls you to go, you'll go. I find that most people are willing to surrender to God as long as what God is telling them to do fits in with their plans. I'll believe God as long as what God is telling me fits in with what I already believe. As long as God's not trying to tell me to move something or go somewhere else or change something, then I'll do it. That's not serving God unconditionally. There must be a willingness, but there also has to be a meekness. Saul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That is, you're in control. I'm not in control. You tell me what you want from me. You tell me what I need to do. I'll do it. You know what, you know what meekness is? Meekness means that you're teachable. Psalm 25 and verse 9 says, The meek he will guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Are you meek? If you're not willing and you're not meek, you, don't, you won't know God's will. Now, here's a third thing in that passage that we see there in Acts chapter 9. Not only did Saul have willingness and a meekness, but he also had an openness. He sought the will of God. 
He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And he wasn't just saying it so he could say, get me out of this situation. Right? How many people end up in a situation where they're, they're sick and they say, God, if you'll heal me, then I will. Right? And then God heals them. And, well, I didn't really mean that. Right? But, but he meant that. He meant it with all of his heart. God, what do you want me to do? Tell me what you want me to do. And if you follow the rest of that passage, he did it. God told him what he wanted him to do, and he did it. He went to the Damascus that he was headed to to kill Christians, and they knew he was coming there. Could you imagine? Now, obviously, Barnabas and the other Christians that were there are saying, when God told them, hey, Saul's coming, and he's saved, you need to take him in, you need to baptize him, you need to treat him like one of yours, and obviously for them, it was like, I don't know if this is real or not. Is this really going to happen, or are we going to bring him in, and he's going to pop out of the Trojan horse, and he's going to kill us all, and that's how he got in there, right? But imagine being Saul. We don't ever look at it from his perspective. These Christians know that he's on the way to kill them, and now God tells, them to, tells him to go to them, and he's going to tell him what to do. Imagine, imagine the trepidation that he must have had, but he did it. He was willing because he had that openness. Have you been open to the will of God? Don't just simply say, if God wants to show me, he can. Have you earnestly prayed and said, God, I want to know your will? Do you report for godly duty? Turn over to Psalm 119. You think it's up to God to put his hand on your shoulder and snatch you and turn you around. Now, sometimes God will hit you over the head and try to get your attention. But most of the time, God waits for us to make that turn. After you've met the Lord Jesus Christ, are you going to be like Paul and say, what is it, Lord, that you really want me to do? Psalm 119, verse 165, the Bible says this, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I hear often, especially with difficult subjects, people say that they're praying for God to show them what they need to change, when in actuality, they're praying that God would change the pastor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 says this, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. The willingness to serve God with all your heart is what counts. Now, I'm not saying once God shows it to you, then you ought to, you ought to make those changes. But if your heart is willing and there's something that you don't know that you're not doing or something that you don't know that you should be doing and you're not, or vice versa, the willingness is what God looks at. He says, for there must be first, if there be first a willing mind, it's accepted according to that man hath, not according to that he hath not. If your mind is willing and you just never heard it before or you just didn't know that you were supposed to be doing that or didn't know that you were not supposed to be doing that, but your heart is willing and open to whatever it is that God wants you to do, God counts that towards somebody who is actually doing it. You don't have to be perfect and you don't have to know it all, but you have to be willing to be taught and you have to have the meekness to bow your knee to God. We'll never be perfect until we get to heaven. But shame on the man who's not trying to live perfectly before God in all of his ways. That's what serving him unconditionally means. And my friends, that's what a pillar is willing to do. Pillars give sacrificially. Pillars serve unconditionally. Turn over to John chapter 13. Number three, pillars love unwaveringly. Pillars love unwaveringly. And I think, first of all, there ought to be a love for the brethren. I think you could probably quote or maybe you sing 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Then you see in John chapter 13 and verse number 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. 
that ought to be a defining characteristic of a church. There ought to be love amongst the people in that church, that brotherly love that binds them together in that unity. There ought not to be fighting in a church. And I'm so thankful for the unity that we have in this church, but it could be very easily upset overnight by somebody who says something or does something or, 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 or offends somebody in some way. And obviously, we ought to try not to offend people. But when you get offended, how do you respond how do you react? Your reaction is the only thing that you can control. And the way that you respond and the way that you react is going to determine whether that brotherly love continues in that church or not. And he says very plainly, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another when everybody treats you right. Well, he doesn't say that, does he? If you have love one to another when everybody does what you want them to do. If you have love one to another when everybody's kind and everybody's getting along. No, if you have love one to another. Love is wanting the best for another person. That's what love is. And that's how you show that love to other people. You put other people first, you put others before you, then you can never be offended because you want the best for them. When you love the brethren, there's not room to get offended by something somebody says or does to you. Lester Roloff was one of the great preachers of the past. And, and uh, I always had a, a, a liking for him because his birthday and my birthday were the same day. Now, he died before I was even born. He died in 1981 or 82. I was born in 1983. But his birthday and my birthday were the same. And I always, uh, uh, and, and just not, not only that, but just, you know, his, the, the, the life that he lived, the messages that he preached. I, I heard him preach many times, not, not in person, but uh, many services that, he, that, that were recorded. And Lester Olaf fought a lot of battles in the state of Texas. They told him that he needed to take a license in order to preach. And a lot of other churches and a lot of other pastors in Texas actually took a license, but he refused to take a license. And then he had the boys' home and the girls' home. So many lives were changed in, in, that, uh, in those homes. And they tried to regulate a lot of those things, and he would not take the state regulation. And there were so many people who, who uh, didn't agree with him. He, you know, he, he, he took a strong stand against the weakening of Christianity in the 60s and the 70s. He had a lot of bad things said about him, and he heard one particularly ugly rumor that was going around uh, uh, about him, and uh, one of his pastor friends asked him, Brother Roloff, doesn't that bother you? Doesn't it offend you that somebody would say something like that about you when it's, when it's obviously not true? Brother Roloff turned to that pastor friend, and he said, you can't offend a dead man. And that's exactly how it ought to be. Of course, he was referring to the fact that as Christians, we should have crucified the flesh. We should die daily. We should be dead to ourselves. And if you're dead to self, then you can't offend somebody who is dead to self. How can you offend a dead man? A Christian that loves unwaveringly will not have room to be offended. We ought to have love for the brethren, but there also ought to be a love for lost souls. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to help them realize the error of their ways, to recognize the heinousness of their sin before a holy God and to turn from a desire for that sin to a desire for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That ought to be the goal of every Christian in this auditorium today. Share the message of the gospel with as many people as we possibly can. And a pillar, somebody who is dedicated to the church of Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to share that message with as many people as they can with as much time as we have left. A pillar loves souls the way that Christ loved and loves souls and will be a witness for Jesus Christ. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll come to the end here and say that pillars give sacrificially. Pillars serve unconditionally. 
Pillars love unwaveringly. And lastly, number four, pillars will stand unapologetically. The Bible is filled with verses that command us to stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 13 says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn to a couple of these passages, I'm not going to, to wait too long, but Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 1 says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The world's going to hate us the same way that it hated Jesus Christ. You're not always going to be liked if you take a stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ the truth of the word of God, but if it's in the Bible, it's worth standing for. If it's in the Bible, it's worth changing for, regardless of what we think or how we feel. Oh, that we would have more men and women willing to stand up and willing to defend the very institution that Jesus Christ gave his life for. You think about those who go off into the military, they take an oath and a vow that they're going to defend this constitu the Constitution and this nation no matter what. And I'm sure many times they're given commands that they don't necessarily agree with. Think about all those that were, that were, that were forced to go over there and fight in Vietnam. Now, I wasn't alive during that time, but I've read a lot about it. I know there was a lot of guys that went over there and fought, not because they wanted to, but because that's what the, the command was that they were given. They were given that command to go over there and fight, and they had made that vow, they had made that commitment that they were going to honor the institution that they were called to represent. And whether they agreed with it or not, they did it because that's what their commanding officer told them to do. And boy, if that not ought to be the same way that it, it works with us, with Jesus Christ, if God gives us the command, we, whether we like it or not, we ought to be willing to do it. We ought to be willing to stand on it. We ought to be willing to make it our conviction. And there's, there, there's, the, the church is under attack today. And the emphasis has gone away from that. Stand in the gap. Make up the hedge. Be part of the defense of the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. Learn what you should believe from the Bible. Know why you believe it. And then stand firmly on it. That's what Christians need. There are so many Christians that are so wishy-washy because so many churches are so shallow and they're not teaching anything because they just want people to come back through the door. They just want people to come in and give money. And so they're not willing to stand up and say things that need to be said from the word of God because they don't want to offend people. And that's not why I'm here. I'm not trying to offend people. But we have a gospel to, to give out. We have a truth to stand on. And it's our responsibility as Christians to stand on that truth or we're going to lose it. Christianity today is not the same as Christianity for our fathers and our grandfathers. Because they believed it and they stood on it and they stuck. It and they knew what the Bible says and they acted on what the Bible said and they believed it. Today's Christian is so shallow that if you bring any doctrine up to them, they don't even, they've never even heard of the doctrine, let alone what they believe about it. That's why we put such an emphasis on making sure that we learn the Bible. And you can't, I, I, I've said it many times, but you can't get that by just being here on Sunday morning. That's like eating a meal one time a week. You're going to be anemic. Spiritually, you need to learn what the Bible says. And we're teaching the Bible. We're doing the best that we can to help you grow. But you have to show up at the dinner table if you want to grow. And it's so important that you do it. We're losing the church.
We're losing the church. Do you know that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction? If we don't pass Christianity on to the next generation, it is gone. Never mind, there's always going to be, God promised that he's always going to preserve his word, promised that he's always going to preserve his church. There will always be an underground church somewhere, but it will be nothing like what we think of the church today. There will not be meeting like this. There will not be opening the Bible like this. And what happens when we don't preach the word of God, when we don't stand on the word of God, is that we are raising a generation of quote-unquote Christians who most of them are not even Christians. And the ones that do are so weak and so shallow that the world is so enticing to them that they would much rather give their lives to that than give their lives to Christianity and give their lives to serving the very institution that Jesus Christ gave his life for. Church ought to be important to you. Church ought to be something that you're willing to give your life for, figuratively or literally, if that's the case. Oh, Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for it. And I'm sure that there are probably quite a few other things that we could list as characteristics of a pillar of the church. But oh, my brothers and my sisters, if you could only know what God has for those who are willing to go all out for him. If you only knew what hopes and dreams I have for your Christian life, and if you could see what God has in store for those who leave the choice to him, then you will never want to go back to small living. Once you, once you get to that mountaintop and you experience what it's like to be absolutely right with God, to have nothing between you and him, to have nothing that's holding you back in your relationship with him, to have nothing that's keeping you away from serving him, to have nothing that's keeping you from being of these characteristics that we talked about today, and you experience what it's like to have that freedom in Jesus Christ, you will never want to go back to where you used to be. You'll never want to go back to small living when you experience what Jesus Christ has for those who are willing to sacrifice and give everything for him. And, a, and sacrificial Christianity in America is nothing compared to sacrificial Christianity in a lot of the rest of the parts of the world. Most of us, even in sacrificial Christianity, are still going to have a nice lifestyle. We're going to live in luxury the same way that we do now. God's not asking us to give up everything that we have, but we ought to be willing to do it. We ought to be willing to sacrifice everything. Don't just be content to fill a pew every Sunday. Don't just show up and go home, and show up and go home, show up and go home. Give yourself in the cause of Christ. Lay up treasures in heaven. Give sacrificially. Serve unconditionally. Love unwaveringly. Stand unapologetically. This church's foundation is and should always be Jesus Christ. But the building that that foundation the building that's on that foundation is supported by pillars, and this church needs more of them. Any person in this room this morning can become a pillar. Won't you decide that you'll be one of them? Takes a lot. Takes a lot of dedication. But what a privilege it is to be a pillar in the church that Jesus Christ gave his life for. It's worth it. It's worth it. Not just for the blessings, but for the privilege of being able to say, I did everything I could for the cause of Jesus Christ with what he gave me. We need pillars. Won't you be one of them? Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you so much for giving your life.
for the church. I thank you so much for giving your life for me. God, I do pray, and this was not the, the, the focus of the message this morning, but I do pray that if there is somebody in here that does not know for sure that they're on their way to heaven, there's no way that you can be a pillar in the church that you gave your life for if we've never even accepted the gift of your life and accepted that salvation that you're offering us freely if we would just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I do pray that if there is somebody in here that's still struggling with that, that they'd get that taken care of today. But God, as a church, oh, my desire, and you know my heart, is that we'd move forward for you. We have so much, so much left to accomplish in this place. So many things that could be done, but it requires dedicated servants of Jesus Christ. Servants who are willing to give up everything that they need to give up to be what you need them to be. God, I pray that you'd help us to be willing to do what's necessary for the sake of your church, for the sake of spreading the message of the gospel, for the sake of this church being here hundreds of years from now, if you tarry. And God, I pray that you'd help us not to fail in passing down to the next generation this Christianity that's so dearly been given to us. And God, I pray that you'd raise up pillars in this church. Well, thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. The invitation is going to play. And boy, this is a dedication. I'm not asking you to come up here and sign your life away. I'm not asking you to come up here and say anything to me. But once you come up here and tell God, God, I want to be a pillar. I want to be a pillar in the church that you gave your life for. And I'm willing, perfectly willing to lay down whatever I need to lay down on the altar. I can be used by you. If I can be a pillar in your church. What a tremendous privilege that is. I've never, I've never been in a church where I was not working as pastoral staff, if you will. I was an assistant pastor for one year up in Indiana. I was an assistant pastor for 10 years down in Chesterfield, and I've been the pastor. I've never been, quote unquote, a layman in the church but what a privilege it would be to be able to be a pillar that will support the church, that will support the gospel, that will support the pastor, that will support the truth being spread. Ah, what a privilege. That's a privilege that I'll never be able to have unless God calls me out of the ministry. But you do. Won't you take it? Won't you use that opportunity to tell God, I'm laying it all down. I want to be used. I want you to use me. As the piano plays, the invitation is open. You come.